Ladies and gentlemen, November 7, 2023, I am Matt Belinsky. This is your weekly dose of sanity, the prevailing narrative, and by far one of my favorite things on this podcast is when I identify a new smart person, I can fire up a conversation with them, access their knowledge, their expertise, and bring that to you guys. And that's what we're doing this week with a gentleman named Demir Marusik, who I'll be speaking with in just a moment. Demir is the assignment editor of the Washington Post opinion section and one of the founders of the Wisdom of Crowds podcast and website, which is really interesting. So I noticed Demir when Ross Douthat, a great columnist for the New York Times, retweeted one of his pieces called Hamas's Bid for Revolutionary Legitimacy. I found this piece to be uniquely insightful on the geopolitics of the of this conflict, what some might call the political dimension. And he was kind of trying to read the tea leaves on what Hamas's motives were and having them think through what the first, second, and third order impact of the October 7th attack would be. Found him to be really insightful. So uh, uh, he and I discussed that political dimension. What are the objectives, motives, concerns, strategies, the various regional players, whether it be Iran, the US, Saudi Arabia, Hamas, what, what's all going on between the sovereign players in the region? And he and I have a great conversation about that coming up in just a moment. So just real quick, we are going to stay on the, uh, the conflict in the Middle East for another week. Starting next week, we'll open it back up to other topics. But this conflict is just, the, the whether you like it or not, is the prism through which so many societal issues are being filtered right now. From the American culture wars to free speech, obviously going to have a massive impact on uh, American politics in the election next year. So I think it's, it, this is worth a little extra attention. So another topic that I think is worth a lot of attention that we're going to discuss before we get to my conversation with Demir is language. In certain terms that have become du jour in the digital media age within the context of specific situations, and one in particular that's being completely abused right now is the term genocide. Obviously, lots of accusations that Israel is engaging in genocide through their bombing campaign in Gaza, uh, pretty much due to, and you can interpret it how you wish, but due to the scope of civilian casualties in this conflict, right? And everyone wants to accuse, oh, well, just throwing around this term genocide. And it's another term that used to have a, a high threshold. Okay, people were very careful for a long time about using the term genocide. It's only if something really did reach a certain extreme radical level would they apply, would they even think about using that term. And this is something that's become an unfortunate feature of American society during the social and digital media age because they did the same thing with Nazi. Think about it. 20 years ago, unless you had photos of somebody with their head shaved and a swastika at a skinhead rally, you pretty much held off from accusing somebody of being a Nazi. I was like, you know something, given the atrocities, given the scale of the, the atrocities from the Nazis, we're going to hold off on applying that term to people unless they've done something really, 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 really bad. Then, of course, the Great Awakening happens around 2013, 2014. Social media, hashtag campaigns and hashtag activism take off. And all of a sudden, people are throwing around, around the term Nazi like it's candy. Anyone who expresses even the most mild right-wing sentiments whatsoever is open to being called a Nazi. Even sitting around, you got people even calling Ben Shapiro a Nazi. Ooh, how dare this college campus invite this Nazi Ben Shapiro, like the most Jewish guy possible, to our campus event. And, you know, I, I sat around and I found this very annoying because I f figured, you know, it really cheapened what the Nazis actually did. It cheapened the Holocaust and what the Jewish people went through and that, you know, looking at the horrific things that the Nazis did from car off individuals to gas chambers, Nazi Heinrich Himmler having brains of individ Jewish individuals splatter all over him because he wanted to go to one of the camps and absorb one, observe one of the mass killings and they were shooting so many people that the brains splattered all over his Nazi uniform. That's what happened under Nazi rule. 
okay? Not this calling anybody with a pickup truck and an American flag in their Instagram bio a Nazi. Yet, that's what occurred over the last few years. And I kept my mouth, despite the fact that I found this somewhat offensive, I kept my mouth shut because I didn't want, I was like, okay, this is annoying, but you know, whatever. This is just how people are going to react. Don't be so sensitive about it. Now, they're abusing and overusing and misapplying the term genocide in a very similar manner. Okay, so what's the accusation? The accusation seems to be that because the war theater in this conflict right now is residential neighborhoods in Gaza, there are a lot of civilians being killed. And since the Israelis are killing a number of civilians, that means that they have an intentional, deliberate genocide going on against the Palestinian people. This holds up to no scrutiny whatsoever, as we're going to talk about. Okay, uh, Wilfred Riley, a former guest of mine, incredibly smart guy. Wilfred's half Nigerian, half Irish. He has no connection to the Jewish people or the uh, Israel whatsoever. Yet he's had a lot of perspectives and opinions that are very Israel friendly because he's a very no nonsense guy and he understands the reality of armed conflict. As he's said, and he's reminded people on Twitter a number of times, war is not genocide. People seem to be unaware of the things that occur during armed conflict, particularly if the war, if the armed conflict theater where the fighting is occurring is in residential neighborhoods. And in this case it is. Why is it occurring in residential neighborhoods? Where do you think the rockets that are fired towards Israel come from? Do you think rockets just fire themselves? Do you think that rockets simply magically appear over Israeli cities? No. There's been nearly 20,000 rockets launched from Gaza uh, since the beginning of this conflict. And where do you think they were launched from? They were launched from civilian residential areas in Gaza. Who is launching them? Who is placing military installations in residential neighborhoods? That is Hamas. So... If there's military strikes in order to take out those military installations in response, what do you think is going to happen? Civilians are unfortunately going to be killed in a lot of instances. And you could sit here and say, you're being incredibly insensitive to the human cost in this conflict. And perhaps a little bit, but I also have perspective in understanding how nearly every other armed conflict since the beginning of the industrial age, where wars were fought with things like tanks and planes and missiles and rockets as opposed to muskets, I'm aware of what has occurred during those wars. And if you're looking at the comparative value, if you're looking at comparative situations, if you call what's going on right now in Gaza a genocide, that definition would apply to probably 70% of the armed conflicts during the industrial age. So why don't we get into what the actual definition of this term is and how it's being abused. Um, there's lots of different definitions going on there about genocide, but one that we'll go with is from the United States Code, Section 1091, Title 18. Genocide is defined and includes violent attacks with a specific intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnic, racial, or religious group. More importantly, to constitute genocide, there must be a proven intent on the part of perpetrators to physically destroy a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group. Cultural desecration or destruction does not suffice, nor does an intention simply to disperse a group. Okay, so you have to have the intent to want to wipe out the group. You have to have intent and you have to actually do it. You have to actually destroy a significant portion of the group in question. So is that what's happening in Israel right now? Even Hamas's claim, which you can imagine, you know, let's take them at somewhere near their word, but the Hamas Health Ministry claims that there's been 10,000 casualties overall since the Israeli bombing campaign, which is only, you know, about 8,000 more than the Israelis killed in one day uh, on October 7th from the Hamas attack, but we'll put that aside for the moment. So that is half of 1% of the 2.2 million residents uh, of Gaza. 
Okay. So numerically, that is a very strange, that is a very odd definition of genocide. If that's going to be your threshold, then once again, most armed conflicts of the last hundred years also qualify as genocide. Besides that, if Israel's intent was to simply wipe out the ethnic group that are the Palestinians in Gaza, don't you think they could do it? Sure seems like they have the capability to do so. That if they wanted to do so, there would certainly be way more casualties right now than 10,000 individuals, than half of 1% of this population. Beyond that, you simply are discounting completely the fact of all the military installations that are valid military targets in Gaza that are what, are the, what they are attacking, okay? And you could sit there and say, well, Israel is not being careful enough. Perhaps that's even a valid position. Nevertheless, that does not constitute genocide. That is not an intent, intentional, intentional deliberate activities to wipe out this entire group. Innocent bystanders does not constitute a genocide as much as some people want it to be. And I understand that people are going to look at this and see an inordinate and horrific amount of human cost and individuals and, and non-combatants that have been killed in the Israeli bombing campaign. If you go and compare this to literally every other war for the past hundred years, this is not at all an outlier whatsoever, okay? And even in the context of the fact that this is being fought in a civilian theater, once again, this is not being fought in civilian areas because Israel chose civilian areas to go bomb. Hamas decided to launch the war from civilian areas and is now getting a response in those areas. Once again, by no reasonable je definition of a genocide does this qualify. And this is all the more ironic is that the definition of genocide was originally conceived of in response to the Holocaust, in response to what nobody at all would object to because the Nazis very blatantly admitted to what they were trying to do in wiping out an entire ethnic group and doing so deliberately. That's what spun up the entire definition of genocide in the first place. And people are now trying to apply this to the Israeli bombing campaign in Gaza, which is take, which has at, at most, based on Hamas's own numbers, one half of 1% of the population of a condensed area that they very easily could take out all of if they so desired. The absurdity of this, the hypocrisy of this is just stunning. It's a venture capitalist named Josh Wolf who's uh, communicated a lot of interesting ideas about this. As he puts it, anyone cynically spinning through repetition the use of the word genocide, and that's actually very important. Repetition of a word is one of the hallmarks of the distortion of terminology and language in the digital media age. People believe, and this is kind of the hashtag thing, right? That if you repeat a term enough, that people are just going to believe it and absorb it into their mind, and it's going to dominate and dictate the discourse, and to a certain extent, it kind of does, unfortunately. To describe Israel military action specifically targeting Hamas terrorists and their infrastructure to defend against Hamas's explicit existential declaration for genocide of Jews and elimination of Israel as declared in their charter is grotesquely disgracing 6 million Jews systematically collected and slaughtered just as Hamas sought to do and did on October 7th. Another very key point. Hamas very clearly wants to ethnically cleanse and perform a genocide on Israel and the Jews. It's in their charter. It can be interpreted through their deliberate killing of civilian combatants with no, no even, you know, not even a sheen, not even a, not even to pretend that it had any military value. Hamas clearly wants to render a genocide on the Jewish people. They're not able to. They do not have the capability. The only thing limiting them is lack of capability. The Genocide Convention was conceived largely in response to World War II, which saw atrocities such as the Holocaust that lacked an adequate description or legal definition. Polish-Jewish lawyer Raphael Lemkin, who had coined the term genocide in 1944 to describe Nazi policies in occupied Europe, the U.S. did not intend to kill innocents nor any specific ethnic or re religious identity when it declared the war on terror, when after horrifically attacks set on defending against the global threat of Al-Qaeda or ISIS, etc. Go look at the battles against ISIS. 
there were a lot of civilians killed. Tons. Horrendous. We wish that we lived in a world that did not have that. Did anyone call that genocide? Was everybody screaming about genocide in that context? No, they were not. It's very suspicious when people decide to utilize, to bring out this term genocide. Arab Muslims make up 21% of Israel, 5% Baha'i, 2% Christians, 2% Druze. If Israel wanted to purge a people as Nazis did of Jews, it would have done it. It wants to live peacefully with Palestinians and not face rhetorical or real existential threats or massacres. You could make the argument, you, know, you could toss around or argue whether or not Israel at this point wants to live peacefully with the Palestinians. However, what you cannot argue, at least not adequately, is that Israel is deliberately conducting this aerial bombing campaign in order to ethnically cleanse or perform a genocide on the Palestinians. The intent does not line up up. The factors do not line up. The numbers do not line up whatsoever. But in order to flip the moral paradigm and uh, uh, frame Israel as the perpetrators, as the morally culpable ones, we are using. they are using the unfortunate and inevitable civilian casualties, which do trace back causality to Hamas. They're trying to call this genocide. And just for a little extra perspective here, a gentleman named Harris Sultan, he's a writer, Arab Muslim. He was trying to put this in perspective that he comes from, you know, kind of a moderate Muslim faction and that they've ignored so much of what has transpired in recent years amongst in, in military conflicts amongst Arab nations that if you're going to apply the, the genocide term to the Israel-Palestine situation, it's curiously been left out or not applied by other Arabs and Muslims to other military conflicts that very well by the definition now being applied could constitute genocide. Here's what he said. My dad, who was a moderate Muslim, finally expressed his concern and asked me, why are you supporting this genocide? Meaning his illusions that Harris was somewhat more receptive to Israel's tactics here. He mentioned that he stopped looking at his phone because he can no longer bear to watch videos of Palestinian children being bombed by Israel. I replied, I, I empathize with the suffering and it's not easy for me either. Then I showed him a photo and we both agreed on the gravity of the situation in Palestine. I then informed him that the photo was actually of a Yemeni child pulled from the rubble result resulting from a Saudi Arabian bombing in Yemen. I pointed out that Israel has allegedly killed 7,000 Palestinians, now 10, while the Saudis have killed at least 150,000 Yemeni Muslims, some, uh, some estimates suggest up to 300,000. How can we call the current conflict a genocide? What the Saudis did is even hardly discussed by Muslims. Don't get me started on 200,000 Muslims killed by Bashar al-Assad in Syria. There was a massive civil war in Syria that nobody seems to ever talk about. The human cost, the civilian casualties in that conflict are exponentially larger than what's going on in Israel right now. It's not even close. Yet, very few people were leveling the genocide. You didn't see genocide hashtags floating all over the internet when applied to that situation. So once again, he's identifying how they only use the genocide paradigm and definition when they don't like who's apparently perpetrating it. He responded that if that's the case, he also disagrees with what the Saudis did. I replied, how convenient. Nearly a half million fellow Muslims have been killed by other Muslims and you didn't even know about it. Yet, when Israel retaliates against a terrorist organization that has killed, raped, and maimed 1,500 of its citizens, the whole Muslim world reacts? It seems to have less to do with preserving Muslim lives and more to do with a religious fantasy of hostility towards the Jews. Man, Harris Sultan. I mean, that is a mic drop right there. If anything boiled down this situation to its essence, it's that right there. Saying clearly there's asymmetrical and selective and arbitrary usage of this term genocide just depending on who the supposed perpetrators are. Depending on who's dropping the bombs, regardless of intent, regardless of impact, that's how we define genocide? 
You're ignoring every other armed conflict in recent ages and the civilian impact and the human cost to those as well. And clearly, as we can see, this definition does not hold up to scrutiny whatsoever. And obviously, it would be incredible if there were more people taking a purely objective perspective and look at the situation like a Harris Sultan. Unfortunately, a lot of people are going to continue to level this accusation. It is entirely baseless. And the use, the casual use of the term genocide needs to stop right now. Now, of course, it would be great if there were more people like Harris Sultan who took a purely objective approach to these things and analyzing whether or not terms like genocide have any validity. Uh, unfortunately, I'm not optimistic about this. People are going to continue to baselessly accuse Israel of a genocide just based off there being civilian casualties in this conflict. Although, however, it does appear that now that it, the IDF has cut off northern Gaza from southern Gaza, the ground invasion is going to happen, which, of course, carries far significant more risk to Israeli soldiers, um, but hopefully can be uh, it can be applied or implemented uh, with more precision in reducing civilian casualties, and that is the hope going forward in this conflict. Um, but I hope this gave you a little more perspective on how the term genocide is being distorted right now and gives you some ammunition, if this comes up in conversation, to use against people who are making bad faith accusations of this against the Israelis. So now we've got a great conversation coming up with Demir Marusik, Washington Post Opinions, Wisdom of Crowds knows everything about the political dimension of this conflict. Going to be chatting with him in just a second. As always, if you'd like, please follow me on my socials at Matt Belinsky, M-A-T-T-B-I-L-I-N-S-K-Y. If you find value in my content, wherever you're listening right now, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, give a like, a comment, subscribe. Every little bit helps and is much appreciated. Demir Marusik coming up in just a moment. And we'll have more of the prevailing narrative after the break. In the social media age where we're essentially observing a war on the ground in real time, observers can't help but get lost in the human impact of an armed conflict. But as we all know, bombs dropping and guns firing is not a spontaneous occurrence. It's the result of deliberate decisions made by those with authority. In other words, the political dimension. What are the motives, objectives, strategies, and concerns of the separate sovereign actors involved in a situation? One person who has shown unique insight on the political dimension of this conflict in the Middle East is Demir Marusik. He is assignment editor for the Washington Post Opinions and co-founder of the Wisdom of Crowds podcast and website. Tamir, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Matt. Uh, really glad to be here. And so much like yourself, right off the bat in response to October 7th, my, my initial instinct was that there was a specific tangible purpose to Hamas's attack with some sort of, you know, kind of practical political dimension disrupting the Abraham Accords, the Israel-Saudi peace uh, peace deal that was on the horizon. But, you, you know, and you you seem to have transformed your understanding or belief in the original motives of, of Hamas's attack in that, you know, as you put it, it, it was a bid for revolutionary legitimacy. There's a lot of different ways to describe it, but how you term it is uh, in spending all of our time on the question of victimhood, bloodshed, and tragic historical causes, we fail to fully appreciate that for revolutionary movements, violent, violence is a political act. Like any number of revolutionary movements, Hamas knew exactly what it was doing all along. Uh, while your initial reading was a cynical calculation, you say you didn't give them their due. They weren't merely trying to torpedo a deal that could be their undoing. They were making a bid for full political legitimacy amongst the Palestinians. If you could expand on what you mean by full leg political legitimacy amongst the Palestinians. Well, look, I mean, we can we can really unpack that in a lot of ways. Um it's it's a it's a long history, um, as I'm, I'm sure your listeners know, uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and the the politics of on the Palestinian side are also long and convoluted. Um, 
Currently, uh, you know, Hamas holds uh, ultimate political control of Gaza um, since, um, uh, well, for quite some time now. And, you know, they, they, there were elections uh, in 2006, uh, which uh, they did win. Uh, but then after that, uh, they've basically been entrenched uh, elections across uh, the entire sort of Palestinian uh, territories just haven't occurred since then. Um, and uh, um, basically, they've ruled it uh, without any kind of uh, democratic legitimacy. Now, the thing is, is that that the situation in Gaza in particular um, Hamas has enjoyed some amount of of of, of political legitimacy, legitimacy there uh, among among the Palestinian people, but certainly has not enjoyed the kind of widespread political legitimacy um, for the entire sort of Palestinian movement. I guess when I wrote that essay, uh, like you said, my first instinct was uh, to basically go to people who were uh, looking at the tragedy um, that had occurred and uh, Hamas's attack and say, and we're saying, um, you know, uh, on the one hand, uh, there's a lot of uh, it's 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 inexcusable what they did, but there's a lot of history back there that that helps us understand what they that what they did. And my my initial instinct was to say, um, guys, have a look at at basically what 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 Hamas is doing. They are uh, they they have they have instigated this conflict, and in some level, uh, they're trying to hijack uh, the sort of whole cause of Palestinian. Um, of the Palestinian cause for themselves. Um, what occurred to me later on as, as time went on and, and um, as uh, I think a lot of supporters, uh, you know, started celebrating the October 7th attacks, um, uh, you know, mostly young activists uh, and Arab American, again, younger people who are, are, are uh, you know, very mobilized and feel very strongly about what has been happening in the Middle East between Israel and Palestine for all these years. Um, there, that really struck me that that they were uh, celebrating basically what Hamas did and not making this kind of um, uh, doing this sort of dance of saying obviously the attack was terrible, but look at look at what what may have contributed to it. Um, and that's what I meant by that sort of revolutionary thing. That's what it dawned on me that that Hamas was in fact, not merely making a narrow play uh, for uh, um, basically, as you said, to scupper these accords and to to um, uh, set itself up as as a kind of leadership, uh, but really was making a, a broader play to uh, be the symbol of sort of Palestinian resistance. And uh, it's been striking the extent to which, uh, at least in the first few weeks, uh, it seems to have worked. Mm -hmm. And it, it seems that. If I'm looking at what a a conscious but not practical motive would be, is that the, a, a group like Hamas doesn't serve so much of a purpose if things are just at equilibrium, right? If I things go right. on, yeah. if things go on as they were, or if there is some sort of kind of partial peace negotiated or, or um, um, regional stability established by a, a deal like the Abraham Accords or rapprochement between Israel and Saudi Arabia that gives some concessions to the Palestinians um, and you know and does absorb their cause into that peace deal in certain ways, then then what's Hamas around for? Why, well, why are they there? You know, I mean, this is this is a, a it's an interesting question. Um, and, uh, you know, on on my podcast with my uh, my my good friend and, and, and colleague Shadi Hamid, we've talked about this. He's made the case that, uh, you know, there's 
there's a reality out there, a possibility that may be well gone at this point where Hamas could have been integrated as, you know, just a, uh, one faction among many. And that that uh, opportunity was missed uh, repeatedly uh, with uh, with the Palestinians, uh, partly by the Palestinians, but also by by the international community um, and Israel for, you know, basically fostering these divisions and not not pushing a kind of real solution, a political solution that would enable a normal politics to arise. I mean, I think more more narrowly what I'd say about uh, about Hamas, um, you know, certainly there are factions within Hamas that are radical, uh, you know, and not not really reconcilable to anything. Um, at this point, I think it's probably safe to say maybe that's all of Hamas. Um, but, uh, you know, the the real threat to them from the Abraham Accords uh, was not so much that I think that the threat of democracy and that they would have to then be part of it. It was that the situation they had found themselves in um, was that they were actually the sole uh, governing, uh, you know, entity there um, that even after, you know, some sort of deal was cut, uh, basically they would they would lose a lot of their funding. Uh, mm -hmm. The Saudis hate them. Uh, you know, uh, the Jordanians hate them. The UAE the hates Egyptians. them. The Egyptians hate them. And and uh, I think it was narrower than this question of of you know uh, Palestinian democracy and their role in it is they'd be the big losers uh, because in, in any transitional sort of moment uh, you would have I think a different sort of you know to put it really uh, lightly a different kind of patronage network arising and they would be on the short end of that um, again the fact that they have been so aggressive and so non compromising I think. Uh, they also, I think, probably rightly feared that there would be retribution from these other parties that were funded by these other actors, so they wouldn't survive it. You know, so I, I just caution you on the, that point of saying that that what they fear is is, is multi-party democracy. I mean, I think it was much more existential for them uh, mm. than that. Well, maybe not necessarily multi uh, multi-party democracy, or uh, you know, the the notion of having to take responsibility for actual governance, although I do kind of feel like they, um, hey, they, they're way better. They serve more of a purpose or it aligns more with their skills, their interests and their capabilities to be a revolutionary movement as opposed to someone who makes sure that, you know, the electricity stays on and the trains run on time. Um, uh, however, you know, at an, another interesting piece that was kind of somewhat supplemental to yours that I read was called the the extremist gambit um, in that, you know, the, the radical... Uh, sees their position eroding uh, and in, in moments of, of status and stasis and equilibrium um, and a, a, an act like this will force people to choose sides. Yeah. Right. So yeah. by all means, there are going to be some people who hate them. Um, they want to force the issue of those who oppose them to state publicly that they oppose them, that, hey, Saudi Arabia, if you're going to take the Israeli side against us, then, OK, we're going to hang that out in front of the rest of the Arab and the Muslim world. So you have to you have to own that in front of everybody because yeah. you, you you can't hide in the shadows. You think there's some legitimacy to that? No, I think that's right. Uh, you know, however, though, just to your earlier point about about making the tr trains run on time and sort of governing Gaza su such as they were, um, it's. I think it is important to to remember one other part is that that uh, no other person than than Netanyahu himself, uh, Israeli Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu, uh, had had concluded, and you know, uh, this is why this attack was such a was such a surprise that they could live with Hamas. 
And the, the, the sort of arrangement that they had uh, was that, um, you know, resources were coming into Gaza. Uh, a fair bit of billions of funding was coming in through Qatar. Israel knew about this, was not blocking it. Um, the, idea, the idea they had, I mean, to put it uh, a little, uh, to oversimplify it a bit and put it a little crudely, was um, Hamas is happy to sit fat in Gaza uh, with a lot of money, uh, govern you know, I mean, they were running the place. Uh, there were services. They, they weren't, it wasn't, uh, you know, a completely dysfunctional sort of place. I mean, they were on top. It wasn't anything approaching a democracy. Um, but they, they provided services to the people. There was money. They, they skimmed off the top. And, and, and uh, the Israelis, and again, it's not just Netanyahu. I think it's, it was a broader society-wide calculus, uh, was that uh, they're happy to be corrupt, um, sit there and get rich. Um, and they could legitimate themselves uh, by lobbing a few rockets every so often at yep. Israeli settlements. Um, Israel had developed Iron Dome, so fair enough, you know, like a few rockets come in, uh, most of them are, are swatted down, uh, there's some commotion, but that it was, uh, there was this calculation that this was a workable modus vivendi, I think. And that blew yeah. up on October 7th. I mean, that's, you know, apart from yeah. all the discussions for Netanyahu, uh, and the IDF and Mossad and like what signals were there? How did they miss this? How could they not plan for an assault like this? It's a bigger question is how did they how did they um, not quite um, how did they see how did they miss the fact that that Hamas was in fact uh, this kind of revolutionary movement and not a status quo corrupt, you know, oligarchic semi-authoritarian thing that they could do business with um so yeah i think that's important up to your point though about like picking sides i think that's that's also right and I, you know even in the geopolitical context you're seeing it right now um the the reality is is that uh a lot of the big powers uh in the middle east um not iran not not its proxies but uh the saudis uae uh, even jordan um are uh I, you know, there are reports about this and sort of whisperings, but that they've told the Americans and the Israelis is like, listen, uh, if you can get rid of Hamas, we will not weep a single tear. But, but, but um, if you kill scores and scores of Palestinian civilians as you do it, that is a problem for us. Yeah. Um, and so you're, you're seeing uh, uh, and, and, you know, not just not just it's a problem for us because uh, we care about Palestinian civilians. Um, I mean, you know, some will say they actually don't. The, they're completely the Arab cynical street, about the people, but they care the, about yeah. they care about that. The Arab street and their people, because these mm -hmm. are also by and large uh, non-responsive uh, authoritarian governments as well, and um, and they're worried about the reaction of of their people. And this was the other thing that Hamas did. I mean, I think this is a an old gambit uh, among sort of Palestinian revolutionary parties is to uh, to to stand for. Uh, this cause and um, to get basically everyday uh, Arabs across the Middle East to, to stand with them. And that creates a, that rupture. And I think that was part, certainly a part of their move here. And we'll have more of the prevailing narrative after the break.
Absolutely. And, and going back to that equilibrium that you do, do mention, and we kind of look at different um, different varieties of regional stability, right? And that what pot- potential, you know, stability on a grander scale would be whatever is resultant from the conclusion to the Abraham Accords that would, would result in some sort of peace treaty. But as you mentioned, there was kind of an interim uh, stability. And, and if you look at the Israeli situation over the last, uh, uh, the, the, the stability of life in Israel over the past maybe 10 years, it's actually remarkably more stable than any time over the prior 20, right? Or even maybe the prior 40 in that this, uh, with the wall built at the end of the 2000s after you know, the, the suicide bombing era in uh, through the, the second intifada um, and then Iron Dome and then a lot of the world kind of forgetting about some of the Islamic fundamental fun- fundamentalist movements that, you know, brought a lot of attention to this side of the world is that the Israelis got got nice and comfortable with this situation where, yes, Hamas, we're going to, they're going to lob some rockets. A couple of them are going to get through. That's going to keep them you know, uh, maintain their legitimacy as a revolutionary organization. Uh, and oh my God, we're under occupation and we're fighting the resistance, yada, yada, yada. Meanwhile, we're going to let the money flow in. Um, the, the children of Hamas uh, Instagram account is going to be kind of ridiculous and showing how they're spending their money all over the Middle East, but their their people won't rise up against them or can't rise up against them. And everybody's just going to go about their, their you know, go about their business. Um, and that 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 was that Israel uh, had made a, a calculated gamble or bet that that was going that that was going to maintain in that uh, they did not assume that Hamas would try to pull an act like this not because they didn't have the you know kind of uh, cell uh, on a cellular level the desire to do it or the bloodlust it's just that the situation that they had didn't want to be disrupted because it was pretty good nevertheless they did go uh, they did commit this act that they do as you mentioned um, would have at least somewhat of a predictable response. Um, but I, and, and this is something, a principle of mind that I think translates to a lot of situations that I think a lot of people miss is people still overestimate how great, uh, how, how much strategic vision a lot of people in power have. Um, you can go look at, uh, you know, a number of source materials um, from the Al Qaeda bombers in September 11th and o- Osama bin Laden. Like we look back at that and think, oh, of course, after we identified that Osama bin Laden was behind September 11th, we were going to go bomb the hell out of him and pursue him in Afghanistan. And a lot of source materials kind of prove that he didn't think so. He really thought we wouldn't come after him. Similarly, in this situation with Hamas, yes, they had to have known that there was going to be a pretty aggressive Israeli response. Um, and a lot of people have cautioned the Israelis and said, well, look what happened with our uh, over response to um, September 11th. But I think that's not really comparable because we uh, the problem wasn't that we went and fought. We went and attacked those who attacked us. The problem was that we tried to go. We attacked a country that didn't attack us and we tried to Con- essentially uh, uh, convert their government and establish a new state on our dime there. But that's another another topic altogether. Um, did is is Hamas now surprised? Are they a little in fuck around, find out mode that they didn't <laughs> expect this type of military response from the Israelis? So I think that's a that's exactly the right question to ask. Uh, you know, I a couple of interviews emerged uh I don't know if shortly thereafter, maybe about a week after was the first time I saw it after October 7th um, with uh, with one Hamas official somewhere who said basically admitted said that, you know, um, uh, this was not really what they anticipated. They did not anticipate the United States to get involved. They did not anticipate uh, Joe Biden to send two carrier groups to the Mediterranean. Um, And, you know, at first when I saw that, uh, I thought to myself, because it was also accompanied, sorry, their statement was also accompanied by uh, uh, basically a uh, remarks that that 
the operation itself got was catastrophically successful. They didn't expect to breach Israeli uh, um, uh, security, uh, you know, uh, walls. Can I, and, you know, something. This can I actually because there's yeah. uh, one point I'd like to inquire on that's related to that. Yeah. My take on this was that you know, listen, and another assumption that people make is that whoever carries out these attacks are incredibly well trained, focused, right. Uh, right. disciplined people. They might have sent Hamas might have sent a bunch of fighters across the border thinking they were going to do X and they ended up doing five times X that these people, these rabid revolutionary soldiers uh, that they sent across the border. Once they got a taste of blood, once they got caught up in the moment, uh, caused way more carnage and engaged in way more uh, uh, degenerative acts than than Hamas might have anticipated. And they thought, you know, okay, maybe we get. 20 hostages and a, a couple hundred dead Israelis, we're yeah. not going to leave with uh, with you know evidence of, of rape and attacks at music festivals and God knows what. And then essentially this just got out of hand. That's 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 that was the claim. And I, I doubted it at first because it sounded very self-serving, you know, that basically my, my first instinct was like, well, that's what you would say once the world's bearing down on you a little bit and you're trying to to sort of launder your your reputation. Um, I haven't seen the the uh, the the footage that uh, the Israeli government has been uh showing journalists uh, of of the rampage. A colleague of mine at the Washington Post did watch it, said it's absolutely horrific. I mean, as you can imagine, you don't need his testimony to 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 get at that. Um, yeah. But but, you know, and it's hard to tell from that footage exactly what's going on, because it is it's it's a collage of horror. Um, but but, you know, there there is a uh, a possibility also, you know, to even complicate your point is that they sent out cadres of better trained people. But to keep an operation like this actually under control, you have a, a small number of people that actually you can give orders to because you're being spied on all the time. So they probably kept it reasonably narrow. And then they did have uh, sort of cadres of uh, young men, you know, prisoners, all that kind of stuff that, that followed in after once it was breached and just went through. Now, did it follow in after at their orders? You know, I it's hard to tell. And again, even an operation of that size to is is a challenge. This is what what militaries do well is how to coordinate that. You can imagine coordination broke down fairly quickly. In any case, I, I'm, I, I, I don't know how to credit any of that. I will say this, though, um, that uh, the fact is uh, that they um, they anticipated what followed would go differently. And, um, you know, we're recording this now. It's Friday, uh, November 3rd. Just today, uh, the head of Hezbollah, the uh, militia in, in Lebanon, gave a speech. And everyone was watching what that speech would be like. Um, and uh, many of us were watching for that speech for signs that Hezbollah is uh, going to stand by uh, Hamas, and this would be a sign that, uh, you know, a wider war was uh, possible uh, or likely. Uh, what we heard today was the opposite of that. Uh, very explicitly, uh, Nasrallah is the, is the leader's name, uh, he very explicitly said that this was a Palestinian decision and that Hezbollah was as surprised as anyone else. Um, now, again, whether this was, this goes to other questions about Iran's complicity in planning in this, uh, who in Iran is the other big question. I mean, you can really, you peel this onion back, it gets more and more complicated. Um, but it's certainly, whatever the reality, whether they were or weren't surprised, at least publicly, he put a lot of distance between Hezbollah and Hamas. 
And while rhetorically saying that they stand with their Palestinian brothers in their struggle against the great Satan America and, you know, and the uh, and the Israelis and, you know, the, the final goal is, is the destruction of Israel and the rest of that, um, it's it, it was definitely a step back. Um, and and I just thought to myself, uh, if I were a Hamas guy right now in uh, in Gaza, having basically gone all in, having miscalculated perhaps on the size of the reaction, um, having banked on taking some hostages, taking some bombs from the Israelis, negotiating for the release of more Palestinian prisoners in exchange for the hostages, some boost in legitimacy, but you know they survived this. Now they're looking at an unprecedented reaction and attack from Israel that is committed to completely their complete destruction. And their closest regional ally, Hezbollah, has just put a lot of space between uh, between them. Uh, so, you know, that all of a sudden now I'm thinking more that 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 there was a real miscalculation here, especially after today, after today's events. Yeah. Yeah. And interesting. I definitely want to dive further into uh, Nasrallah's speech and, you know, more so what what wasn't said than what was said. And I guess it's two competing theses. Right. And I, I stated this right off the bat. And a- after October 7th um, was what's the case for World War Three, since there's a lot of people who may not be so attached to the Israeli cause. And their real concern is about this becoming a regional conflict in the U.S. getting involved, whatnot. And that case would be or, or the or the or the case for uh, uh, the thesis that is there, that Hamas was trying to dupe Israel to uh, an exaggerated response was that, okay, we are going to uh, conduct a military uh, or a terrorist operation for max carnage to uh, to trigger a, a an exaggerated, um, an exaggerated, sloppy, reckless response that forces the other regional actors hands, because how could uh, Iran, how could Hezbollah sit there and let Gaza be blown to smithereens and Hamas be dislodged? And that's specifically what they were doing deliberately. And that that was then to kind of test, play a game of chicken with the United States who they believe to be in a uh, uh, in a vulnerable position right now and kind of estimating some weakness on the U.S., but the U.S. would feel inspired to get involved and everything spirals out of control and voila, we have World War III. Um, there are a lot of people who did suspect that, that that was the blueprint here, that that was the game plan. doesn't seem to be playing out that way. It seems to be playing out that, you know, that the, the Hezbollahs and the Irans, while they probably had far more of uh, 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 far more involvement in this uh, as a catalyst than they may be admitting right now. Certainly don't want to take credit for it. Certainly don't want to be in a position where they are tempting fate with the United States getting involved. And, and these things, these things weren't. So um, whoever was doing the planning on the on the Hamas side um, certainly was not en- able to engineer the results and the the various phases of this conflict as much as they as much as someone would suspect. Yeah, look, again, I think you should just we should latch on to what you said uh, in our previous uh, back and forth uh, about, you know, the wisdom and overestimating the wisdom of leaders. Yeah, Um, I think I think it's it's maybe, you know, trying to sort of do do, you know, an Occam's razor on this. Um, Let's assume the following that that Hamas needed to do this because of the Abraham Accords, because uh, it would only they calculated it would only benefit them for legitimacy purposes. That um, uh, they take some hostages, uh, they take some incoming fire from the Israelis. The Israelis would kill a bunch of civilians. This would uh, cause the international community to rise up against them. Uh, the United States would be in a pickle, as they usually are in these situations, because uh, we end up standing with Israel, and uh, that just sort of drives a wedge. Um, they could weather it. Um, 
Iran uh, is was happy to, let's say, bless it or whoever, you know, the IRGC in Iran is probably running these sorts of things, blessed it, said, you know, uh, good enough, good enough, Gambit, let's give it a shot. Um, and uh, and that was the plan that Israel comes out weakened, uh, you know, in a worse position in the international community, the United States as well for standing with Israel, um, uh, civilian casualties, uh, and and that just raises the Palestinian question again, which has been subsumed, as you said, it was in this like very long term uh, status quo that was, uh, from Israel's perspective, quite sustainable. Um, and, uh, they were getting nowhere. So, so raise the issue. Everyone, you know, wins Israel and America lose and onto the next round. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, I mean, uh, the, the, the real worry about world war three, as you put it, uh, and what was keeping me up at night was, was slightly different. It was that whether Hamas you know, made the call on their own to, uh, for their own narrow reasons, consulted with the Iranians and got an approval, or whether the Iranians were approving it, but were, you know, expecting it to, to go this far, but not further, that if it really started looking like Israel was going to actually wipe out Hamas, like literally remove them as a viable player. Now, again, we can ask what that looks like, how viable that is, what kind of endgame for Gaza there is. That's a, I mean, still many questions there. But let's say that it started to look like Hamas was going to be completely destroyed in Gaza. At that point, the calculus for Iran ends up being, we have our power in the region is grounded in um, several proxies. Uh, Hamas and Hezbollah are two of them. Uh, and insofar as one of our goals at regional hegemony is our fight against Israel, uh, and you know, for them, ideally, perhaps at the limit, it's elimination um, as a as a state. Um, you know, this those are two very uh, valuable weapons that they have, and they're about to, as a result of a miscalculation, uh, lose one of those weapons. And at that point, your calculus becomes. Um, do I escalate further uh, in hopes of preserving one of my weapons or do I cut my losses and say we're out? And you can do this in an incremental way that doesn't immediately will uh, World War Three, right? Uh, you, you, get, uh, you get Hezbollah to uh, attack Israel further in the north, stretching Israeli defenses more. Um, you certainly have assets in the West Bank, so have the West Bank explode even further, opening up a third front from Isra for Israel. Uh, the United States has committed, um, uh, you know, an aircraft carrier uh, squadron there. Uh, see if they if they actually mean it. Uh, President Obama certainly, with his red line, has you know put a precedent out there in the Middle East that oftentimes the United States says things and doesn't mean it. So is it worth testing the United States here? If the United States blinks, then Israel's alone fighting a two and a half front war. Um, that's good. Maybe that's worth trying. Maybe we can do it without doing this. But then World War III proceeds in the following uh, sense. Uh, the United States starts bombing Hezbollah, uh, on, you know, which is attacking Israel, as we said we would, which is what Biden did by sending his, uh, the carriers over there, our carriers. Um, uh, at that point, we have a lot of bases all across the Middle East. And then the logic becomes uh, that other proxies uh, in Iraq and Syria and elsewhere start attacking those bases. So now all of a sudden, Americans are very much in the fight, not from the air, just bombing, but but are actually getting killed. And at that point, you know, we're, we start talking about striking Iran. Now, how does that go to actual World War Three? 
you know, I guess use your imagination, but in any case, you've got like a wider regional war while there's a war going on in Ukraine. Um, and, you know, the situation in, in Asia is also unstable. You know, it's so that's why the Hezbollah speech, uh, I think, really was Nasrallah's speech was so significant, because at least that one path to this becoming a regional war seems a lot less likely at this point. Uh, it, I read that speech as saying, uh, we don't want to get bombed yeah. by the United yeah. States. Uh, and, and, you know, because I, I posted that to my social media, it was like, hey, I think this is a good sign. And, you know, my call was that this would not expand into a, a wider regional war. And I think this is another data point in that favor. And some people uh, kind of dismissed that and brushed it aside and said, ah, they're just trying to lull Israel to sleep. And I think that's a complete and utter misunderstanding of how these Arab leaders talk because they don't. They, People don't realize that that uh, these leaders, they're not just talking to the Israelis. They're not talking to their enemies. They're talking to their supposed allies. They're talking to others in the region. And that uh, Nasrallah and Hezbollah were incentivized, if they were to lie, to lie in the complete opposite direction. What yeah. looks good for them is to posture further, to be more threatening, to talk louder, to talk, uh, uh, to be more belligerent like that. If they were to lie, if they were to exaggerate, um, if their message were to be an exaggeration of what their actions are going to be, it would be in that direction as opposed to exaggerating in a less belligerent direction. Would you agree? Look, I, 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 I feel like um, <laughs> ever since... Uh, Putin invaded Ukraine. I have, um, I have, I have really tried to sort of live by the idea that one should listen to what people say uh, mm -hmm. and just sort of take them at their word. Um, <laughs> and 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 I think there's a lot of sort of mind reading that can happen in this and sort of trying to parse it and you know say there's a Middle Eastern context for these things and the rest of that. Um, and and you know I'll, I'll I put my cards on the table. I, I'm not I'm not by any stretch of the imagination, uh, an expert in the Middle East per se. I mean, I've been following all sorts of conflicts around the world for, for all sorts of years. And I, 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 I think it's, it's, it really is, I think, important to watch what people say and then wa watch what they do. Mm -hmm. um, the, the, I wouldn't say that, that we are out of the woods yet in any way. Uh, I think yeah. there are many ways that this could absolutely spiral still. Um, uh, I think even though, uh, you know, Hezbollah and presumably by extension the Iranians as well uh, have have backed off the ledge. Uh, perhaps there are still red lines that could that could uh, flare that up for them. Uh, the other thing to keep in mind is that um, I think in Israel right now, uh, after having uh, suffered this tragedy uh, and this catastrophe, the security collapse, um, they are uh, the public is feeling vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And the politicians want to show a big win. Um, yeah, there is a huge temptation uh, in the Israeli security establishment uh, to actually uh, take care of Hezbollah as well. Um, and you know, the interesting thing there is that I think this is one of the the debates you'll be seeing in um, basically sort of the the international uh, relations sphere. Um, and it's been going on for a while. It's been going on since at least uh, uh, the Iran deal, Obama's Iran deal was going on. Is, you know, uh, people are saying that, that, in fact, Israel's interests and the United States' interests in the Middle East should be aligned, that Iran is the, the, the big problem. And if Israel uh, can start going after Hezbollah, let's, let's just like 
have the the cards fall where they may and, and settle out a new order after this. I don't think that's how certainly this administration see it sees it. Personally, I don't I'm not really keen to roll those dice. Uh, as I was saying, the, 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 the world is a very dangerous place. We are uh, quite already committed, uh, at least rhetorically and, and, and uh, you know, more than rhetorically in the, in the case uh, of the Ukraine war. Um, and then to open up, to roll the dice, to open up and, you know, to walk into a war in the Middle East, that's not in the United States interest right now. Not at um, least. And, and so uh, there you might see something else, which is that uh, perceived Israeli interests and American interests may diverge on that. Uh, I, I think the Israelis are smart enough to understand where the Americans really don't want to go. And I think that is the, the wider regional war. And they would, I think, understand that they'd be quite isolated if they, for some reason, ended up, uh, you know, uh, going for Hezbollah. But, you know, it's war. Uh, miscalculations happen. Uh, something, you know, in the sort of tit for tat that is likely to keep uh, continuing between Hezbollah and, uh, and Israel, um, you know, maybe there's a miscalculation. Maybe some commander decides they need to hit deeper inside Israel, which then gives Israel the pretext to go. And then uh, the question is, again, then we're back at the, the, the whole sort, sort of chain of events that I was describing earlier. So while I do think that this speech really did take us, Nasrallah's speech did take us back from the brink in a substantial way, I don't think anyone should be particularly complacent that, that this is in any ways way over. I mean, it could go, yeah. it could go south any number of ways. Yeah. No. And in looking at where we you know, we've gone from A to B and where, you know, how you can connect B to C would mean, you know, how this ends. Um, as you as you mentioned, that the the likely the strongest uh, the bull case for Iran environment uh, uh, involvement was that, OK, they're going to lose if, if Hamas truly is taken out, they're going to lose a lot of regional legitimacy. And now we're in a situation where it looks like, I mean, the Israelis don't look like they're going to be holding anything back. It doesn't look like they're pulling any punches here. They're truly trying to take Hamas out or at least inflict so much damage on Gaza that, you know, whatever they want to do in their little underground tunnels isn't going to really matter, at least not for a few years of lifting of, of you know, lifting back military capabilities, if that's going to, if it can even be done in a few years. Um, but I mean, it, it with the amount of damage they're doing with it seems like they they are taking more of an incremental approach where it seems like they they cut off um they they geographically cut off half of Gaza and now they're incrementally moving closer and closer uh, and surrounding Gaza city um but i mean it, it, from what you've gathered is there a white flag? Is there an unconditional surrender? Maybe not quite as formal as uh, Imperial Japan finally waving the white flag, getting up on a, a battleship in the Pacific and signing uh, a surrender to the United States. But I mean, how else do you see this ending? I mean, it, it looks like Israel's in this to win it, and they're gonna they're going to blow up as many parts of northern Gaza as they need in order to declare some sort of victory. Um, and and that doesn't look like there's it doesn't appear that there's going to be an offer on the Palestinian side of here's you know 150 of 230 hostages and here's you know we're coughing up four of our our third tier commanders and okay let's go back to you know to what some version of what was going on on october 6th I'm, i am having a hard time projecting out how this situation uh, uh how we reestablish some sort of stability like how i don't want to say how this ends because i do not think it will be an end um uh, in, in any real sense of the term but how this this current uh, the current conflict, or at least this phase of it, ends. Um, you know, uh, 
yeah, it's really hard to tell. Um, yeah, I can speculate. Um, I, 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 I wonder if they unconditionally uh, released all the hostages. Um, that at that point. Um, and let's say, you know, it's also important to remember, uh, listeners should remember that, you know, uh, Hamas leadership is not just in Gaza. They're, they're also based in Qatar and, and some of them in Turkey. As oh, well. I want to get to that. Oh yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's, uh, you know, the political leadership, I mean, I, it's maybe too simplistic to say that the political leadership is abroad and the military leadership is inside. Um, but one could, one could, I guess, imagine, uh, that, uh, the Hamas leaders outside sell out their, uh, their fighters on the ground and start demanding that, that the hostages get released. The, the military commanders obey at that point, knowing that, uh, what they might face, um, as far as, you know, justice in Israel. Um, I, you know, I, there's many ways to sort of game that out. Should 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 the Israelis start talking about what they would require to pull this off, or do they just keep piling on the pain and then later on start talking about uh, conditions for what surrender might look like? I, mm -hmm. It doesn't feel like the Israelis are quite there yet. I mean, to your yeah. point, to your point about like again, what does it look like? This is rank speculation. You know, early on. Israelis had talked about uh, some government officials maybe speaking out of turn, but it clear it's an idea that's out there. Had talked about, you know, Gaza afterwards uh, will not be territorially the same Gaza that was there before. Buffer zones will be built up. Um, and, you know, uh, basically the Israeli goal is to go in there, eliminate Hamas, which, you know, as we were talking, it's, it's hard to imagine exactly what that means. But to, to their satisfaction, cripple its capacity to basically govern for X period of time, take out all their senior leaders, and then leave. Um, what's that buffer zone look like? Is what I was I've been thinking of in the last uh, in the last uh, you know day or so. Uh, I always imagined okay, buffer zone. It would be something like uh, several kilometers all around Gaza, so Gaza shrinks internally. But ever since they cut off Gaza City like this. I wonder if the buffer zone is just not like a huge chunk off the north of Gaza, which puts the rockets and everything else further out of range of Tel Aviv um, and, you know, allows for perhaps more interceptors and whatever to be placed there. I don't know. I don't know what that looks like. But that's just another thing to, to keep in mind here is that how little we know of what the final outcome would look like. Uh, how much presence do the Israelis currently envision having in uh, what used to be Gaza uh, that may end up not being Gaza in the future as a security cordon. What does that look like? Um, there's discussions, uh, diplomatic discussions going on about, you know, the day after and governance of that. Uh, I don't know how much time and effort the Israelis are personally expending on that question as they're trying to prosecute this war uh, right now. Others are, but I'm not sure where the Israelis are. Yeah. And speaking of potential peace or settlement negotiations i mean one one party that for better or for worse may be critical to those discussions or at least been active on in whatever preliminary discussions there have been thus far as qatar um and the the kind of suspicion uh the the highly skeptical borderline conspiracy faction of twitter uh or or whoever's discussing this uh, this issue is speculating that wait a second uh, uh okay america has so many interests in qatar there's they're clearly sheltering 
uh, Hamas leadership if we really want, if what the sovereign actors want in this situation is an end to the hostilities? Um, why aren't we demanding Qatar uh, cough up Hamas's leadership? And I think that's a real blatant misunderstanding of how those people got there, why those people are there, and how these things operate in the Middle East. And that while we may see things as utterly black and white, uh, someone in, in the, uh, the, the leadership of Qatar might not think so, and that they might allow for you know other countries think about it the united states there's embassies of hostile hostile nations in in our country I and mean, we allow many of their diplomats and their leaders to freely move uh, and and operate and that you know qatar might not be thinking so uh, a lot in such manichian terms uh, uh, of black and white of e- either we are going to be on the side of the saudis and cozen up to israel or we are in the iranian anti uh israel and we need to wipe the the israelis off the map coalition in that they're trying to balance regional interests just like anybody else and while they're not going to uh, they're not going to sacrifice their sovereignty in taking somebody else's orders to kick out these Hamas leadership uh, these Hamas leaders they're not necessarily enthralled with the idea of Hamas's leadership continuing to to be there um, and that 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 um, that they're not necessarily sheltering them in the way that the Taliban sheltered Osama bin Laden and Al Qaeda, and that this is something that is conditional and uh, is part of the many plates that need to be main, uh, maintained spinning in the Middle East, as opposed to uh, uh, some um, some you know kind of expression of Qatar's true intentions and uh, proof that the United States is really playing both sides of this battle because they're not demanding Qatar release Hamas's leaders. I'm fairly certain that the issue has been brought up <laughs> and that it has been discussed. Uh, yep. Fairly certain of that. Um, but but you're absolutely right to characterize it that way. I mean, uh, you know, this will be part of the ongoing negotiations. I mean, Qatar is uh, um, is 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 famous famously, you know, uh, plays that game in the Middle East. Um, and uh, I, you know. Uh, there's a price for everything that doesn't it doesn't necessarily uh mean one thing or the other uh you know how they're behaving at the moment i think just definitely watch that space uh and what what happens with that i mean it, it's it's certainly an ask um uh, and it we'll, we'll see we'll see where it ends up uh on the the um you know uh, the bigger question about sort of hamas's leadership abroad um it's I, the other thing to watch is just basically whether cars start blowing up mysteriously uh, and Hamas leaders um, abroad start dying mysterious ways. I mean, I, I, I'd be I'd be shocked if 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 Mossad is not working on that right now, um, because, uh, you know, I mean, when you say you're going to eliminate Hamas as an institution, it doesn't just mean uh, tear up the tunnels. It means eliminate Hamas as an institution. Yeah. Uh, and Israel has a has a has a history of following through on those kinds of threats. So that's the other thing to watch. Uh, again, I don't have the visibility on the politics there to see uh, whether there are fissures that uh, you know are being exploited. I'm, I'm sure it's chaos, and you know, I, I wonder if anyone really knows the whole story of everything that's going on at this point. It's all partial truths. Um, but yeah, I, I'd say definitely watch that space. Watch watch what Qatar does uh, over time. Um, and and watch what happens to the Hamas leadership abroad over time as well, and watch what they do. That's the other thing to watch. I mean, I, you know, if if to me one of the biggest tells 
of uh, Hamas having like a real crisis would be if you if if any leadership fissures emerge into public, uh, that will be a sign that that uh, you know they they that it's the wheels are coming off. Um, so far, so far we haven't seen much of that. Yeah, you got to imagine at some point every no matter how vicious the movement at some point some uh, however much uh, glory or death a movement is at some point some member of the leadership has always spoken up and said hey you know may, maybe we cut a deal maybe we uh, maybe we cut our losses right now from you know Nazi Germany to god knows what and you would imagine at least somebody in the Hamas leadership said hey maybe we should return some of these hostages at this point so we'll have to see how that develops although it is yet to occur um going back to you know this whole this whole entire situation and the reason that I think a lot of lay people um, are really missing a lot of the boats that could be caught here is people not understand people weren't aware of the development of the Abraham Accords and the potential alliance of Saudi Arabia and Israel uh, as a counterweight to Iran in the region and this is something that's still a little foreign conceptually to a lot of people and and not realizing that wait a second there's a a very western say what you want about him a very western friendly and desirous of being westernized leader in Saudi Arabia and he feels comfortable enough that his people will not revolt and storm storm his tower uh, if he goes and cuts uh, a piece deal with the Israelis and is just as hostile and concerned about Iran as he might be about the Jewish presence in the region. Um, I was very pessimistic after October 7th about the at least the near-term viability of the Abraham Accords, but um, I, I could be pleasantly, you know, pleasantly surprised to be wrong in this case and that the Saudis have and, and UAE as well um, have also been pretty vocal about, you know, at least to uh, uh, being as measured as possible and trying to say, hey, we think that Hamas deliberately tried to interfere with our deal here and is sacrificing their people in the name of interfering with our deal. And this is still a deal that we're interested in pursuing. Um, what do you think the viability is of the Abraham Accords and, you know, and where were the Saudis and other members of the Gulf Coalition that were in talks to uh, uh, to uh, uh, cut a peace deal with Israel where they're at right now? Let me let me just uh, dial back one thing, roll back just one thing on, on what you just asked at the beginning there. You said, you know, uh, listeners may not have been paying attention to have seen that this the Abraham Accords were, were coming up. I just wanted to land one bit of criticism about the Biden administration in the run up to this um, to just sort of give a little bit more context to that. Uh, the Abraham Accords were negotiated under Trump. Um, and um, it, you know, the Saudis were not part uh, party to them, and so uh, a lot of the game up till now is to get the Saudis into it, to basically get them to recognize Israel. Uh, part of the Saudis' ask has been, uh, you know, uh, under you know uh, this initiative that they did called the Arab Peace Initiative, which really is tied to uh, coming up with a solution to you know two-state solution for uh, for the Palestinians, um, and. Um, so, so it's been sort of around that, but in the background has been the question of Iran. The the criticism I would just sort of want to put out there uh, about the Biden administration's approach, uh, you know, they they came in uh, with this idea that that um, basically China was the the main threat coming up, uh, and that they needed to, uh, in many ways. Uh, extricate the United States out of uh, its sort of pressing security commitments in both Europe uh, and the Middle East. Uh, 
For Europe, uh, early on, before uh, Putin invaded Ukraine, uh, there was a lot of talk. You could see it in the press uh, uh, that National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan had this idea called Park Russia. Just basically, Russia is a status quo power as well. Uh, they're fine. Uh, you know, we'll just sort of placate them. You know, Nord Stream 2 deal, all the rest of that. They're they're good and um, maybe not good and maybe not the ideal regime. We don't like all of that. But, you know, again, we can work with them. Kind of a funny echo of what we were talking about, uh, Netanyahu and Israeli sort of ideas about, about Hamas. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, and in parallel, their idea uh, for the Middle East uh, was that, um, uh, you know, one of the, the big things that they thought Trump had damaged was uh, efforts for rapprochement with Iran. That is uh, that, uh, you know, going back on the, the Iran nuclear deal, the JCPOA um, had caused a lot of damage and they had spent a lot of diplomatic capital trying to repair that. It wasn't going anywhere, though. The Iranians were had sort of dug their heels in. Um, and, and then, you know, again, it's one shouldn't over-personalize administrations. Administrations are, are you know, tens of thousands of people, civil servants and diplomats and everyone arguing about these sorts of things. But so clearly there were factions that said that that Trump's Abraham Accords uh, were also, you know, a good and important thing to build on. Uh, so in, there was this weird sort of policy thing that was going on in the Middle East, which was um, that uh, uh, the United States was at the same time trying to patch, patch things up with Iran. Um, and then, as especially as that was drying up, they really leaned into bringing the Saudis into the Abraham Accords. Um, but but never did they abandon one track for the other. They sort of were doing them at the same time. And and that's, again, sort of in retrospect, uh, a, a wild thing to be doing because one of the main things yeah. that the Saudis yeah. are scared of is Iran. And um, and and uh, the uh, uh, bringing Saudi into uh, uh, the Abraham Accords would have involved all sorts of security sweeteners from the United States as well uh, to defend from Iran. <laughs> and 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 then as we get back to what we were discussing earlier, uh, Hamas and therefore by at least some extension Iran, who sees Hamas as a very valuable tool in their shed was stood to be the big loser of the Saudis signing a deal with the Israelis. So basically you had uh, uh, the Biden administration trying to extricate itself out of the Middle East by pursuing what are, in my mind, like two very contradictory policies at the same yeah. time. Yeah. You, you kind of have to pick one, right? No, that I, that I entirely agree with your point. And this is my, at least how I've read the tea leaves about this tracking back to where it emanated with Obama. Barack Obama got elected. Everyone forgets he got elected because everybody else, just about every other major politician in America supported the Iraq war and he did not. Correct. Okay. He didn't give in to the, to the group think yep. he, his political rise was, uh, was facilitated by not doing stupid things involving us further in the Middle East. And while a lot of people in, uh, interpreted this as anti-Semitism or hostility to Israel, more so he just said, well, wait a second, I, want, I, I think we should do whatever we, we should take whatever steps we can to tie a bow on the Middle East so we don't have to get involved because this is just too dangerous for us. The cost benefit does not work out. And if you are stridently pro-Israel, then you are either one, going to say, sorry, that is naive, it's not, not simply not possible, or two, um, the United States has some 
some sort of moral imperative to support Israel and protect them and be a close ally. And so you can't do whatever Obama was trying to do, even if his motive was not anti-Semitism or Jewish hostility. Right. Um, And he may have had a naive belief. I think he had a naive belief that you could establish you could you could negotiate and contract into that regional stability if the Israelis know that there's all this oversight and the Iranians aren't going to create a nuclear weapon. You've got other skin in the game. You've got the the Europeans supporting this. The U.S. not because it doesn't like Israel or is less sympathetic to his cause, simply because it doesn't serve our our strategic interests quite as much. And look at all the trouble it got it got us into in the Middle East and with the Islamic world. We want to pull back from that. So the Iran deal is us going to be tying a bow on that, so we could pull out of the Middle East. And that incredibly naive belief that the Iran, that the JCPOA was going to uh, establish regional stability, at least for the not not just the short term, but maybe the midterm. Um, one, it didn't anticipate that, hey, Barack Obama's not the president forever and new administrations are going to come in and circumstances are going to change. And two, it just it, it, it was all based on an assumption of uh, uh, you know, an assumption that the Middle East is a lot more simple than it is and that you're not going to have these regional hostilities and that just because uh, the Israelis might be secure that it, Iran isn't going to develop a nuclear bomb and go bomb them next week, that doesn't mean that everybody's going to get along in the sandbox. And I think that what we're seeing right now is a bit of the residual chaos from that naive miscalculation. I think that's right. I mean, you know, another sort of uh, bitter joke you might make is that even though Trump uh, the Trump administration got the Abraham Accords together. They were not possible without Obama and and his yeah. pivot to Iran because yeah. that scared that that scared yeah. the the, the Gulfies in such a big way uh, that they it, it that all of a sudden cooperation with Israel became conceivable to them. I mean, you have to sort of like take that into account. But then you know, return to your 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 other questions like what are the chances of this sort of going forward. I don't know. That's that's a, a really hard one. I I for whatever reason uh, I guess share maybe some of your optimism that it's still quite doable. Um, I and it, but it all depends on on basically how this war goes. Um, I think there's well, a you, deal. Hmm? Go sorry, on. you're tr- you're trying to read the the tea leaves incrementally, right? You're trying to take yeah. these incremental data points, just like you're taking the incremental data point that well, okay, Israel has gone this far. And yep. it hasn't triggered Iranian involvement. So, yep. OK, that leads us to believe it might not. Um, the Israel has gone this far. It has not let it is not forced the Saudis to disavow Israel and call them Zionist pigs and completely cast off any uh, potentiality of a peace deal with them. So, OK, if if what Israel has done till this point has not, you know, may um, has not completely blown up the deal or inspired the Saudis to disavow the deal, then, OK, maybe there's nothing that will make them do that. I guess well, that's what I'm thinking. I, I, I'm not. I wouldn't say that. I, there's plenty they could do that could that could torpedo it. Um, mm-hmm. I look. I, I I think, I think you have to keep in mind that that one of the linchpins, apart from sort of whatever American security guarantees would need to be there. I I, I think the Saudis are legitimately, uh, you know, and I, we actually ran a, a piece in the Washington Post uh, from a, a Saudi scholar that pointed this out that that in his conversation with Saudi officials. Um, the the uh, they're they're sort of struck by the fact that the Israelis don't think that they're serious about the Palestinian questions, and they are, and they say that that this is this has to be the thing. So I would say the following, and it, this is why I wouldn't I wouldn't I wouldn't pronounce one way or the other on whether it's you know how likely it is to succeed, but I don't think it's dead, and that's the following is uh, on the other side of this um, is 
whatever leader is uh, governing um, Israel at the time uh, able to build the kind of consensus, and is that kind of consensus even buildable in an Israeli society uh, at the end of this kind of war and this this kind of you know traumatic experience and the, that sense of insecurity to say now we actually have to go for some kind of two-state solution because i think that that the linchpin for this is going to be that the set to put it even more bluntly you know without these uh highfalutin questions about uh you know justice and the rest of that there's no way the saudis would in any way want to become uh the guardians and custodians of the palestinian people uh without some guarantee that this could end up being something freestanding and autonomous at some point they would take that on and and help finance i think uh you know whatever would arise there and again i don't think we should have any impressions that this would be a democracy and again i'm not sure whether saudis themselves not a democracy would be so keen on democracies but yeah. i'm just saying that that the 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 this idea that they would just take on this custodianship of um of a people that have just gone through themselves uh, what is likely to be a is, is already for them a catastrophic war and is likely to get much worse uh, with all the trauma with all the uh, you know basically pent up forces perhaps disorganized but just ready to 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 uh, stand up for something and to to take on the responsibility and and you know custodianship of territories like these that. Uh, don't have any chance of at ever standing on their own, and to be seen to doing it at the behest of the Israelis—that's no one wants that. Why? That's a yeah. that's a that's a turd of. A, uh, sorry, I don't know if you, you can say that on your podcast. No, that's a grip that's it and a, rip it. That's a that's a real uh, garbage proposition. Uh, yeah. You know, to be to be to be looking at. Um, so the Saudis are going to need more than just okay. We got rid of Hamas here. Yeah, that's yeah. not going to fly. Hey, you so take you brought you know someone yeah. else broke it someone else broke it you buy it we broke yeah. it you buy it yeah. we broke it and now it's yours thanks yeah like great gift like they don't want that so mm -hmm. you know i think that's the way to think about the likelihood of um uh you know some sort of uh abraham accords surviving uh and the saudis joining it thereafter there's definitely an opportunity and um but it's it's you know it's not simple because we're not just talking about Gaza, we're talking about the West Bank. And we're talking about uh, all the issues that have sunk these uh, these negotiations uh, forever, basically. Uh, but, you know, is this, is this the kind of moment and enough of a cataclysm uh, to cough up uh, the kind of, you know, far-seeing leadership on all sides that is able, that, that are able to sort of see to some kind of of workable solution um i don't think i, I think it would be foolish to completely dismiss it out, dismiss it out of hand um I, I i i i can't help but feel that that there's an opportunity there whether mm -hmm. we have the people to exploit it i don't know yeah uh, tangled web as always in the middle east maybe that's why this place keeps on being the focus of the world's attention uh, every time we forget about it a couple years later it pops back up just 
Too many, too many interesting storylines, for better or for worse. Uh, Demir, I know it's uh, late on the East Coast. We are we are recording this on a Friday afternoon. We've had a couple couple reasons for optimism. She uh, she Nasrallah's speech. You know the Saudis coming out and not not uh, at least giving the impression they're still in the mix for the Abraham Accords. So hopefully by the time I release this early next week, we do not have re- more reasons for pessimism. Um, so I mean hopefully we can carry this optimism over the week. Um, Demir, you've been you know a really interesting voice on on these topics, and I'm so glad that I discovered you and thank uh thank ross douthat for uh not just being a great columnist but also a great talent assessor um so thank you once again so much for joining us maybe if you could tell everybody where they can find you uh thanks matt uh listeners can find me uh on twitter mostly at d marusik um and do check out uh the podcast that uh, my friend shadi hamid and i host uh wisdom of crowds it's at uh, wisdom of crowds dot live on the website and of course on iTunes and Spotify and everywhere else. And of course, if you like tongue-in-cheek names, the wisdom of crowds for that one, you know, God God bless the wisdom of crowds, particularly in this day and age. Um, indeed, indeed. Absolutely, everybody. This is the prevailing narrative. I am Matt Belinsky. Once again, you can listen and subscribe to The Prevailing Narrative on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. Make sure to follow me on my socials at Matt Belinsky, M-A-T-T-B-I-L-I-N-S-K-Y. Thanks once again so much, everybody. This is The Prevailing Narrative.